Uncertainty in life is inescapable, no matter how much we wish it were otherwise. In the realm of science and statistics, uncertainty is the rule. Communicating what uncertainty means in terms of research is an at times Herculean task. It's also the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Louise Ryan. Ryan is a professor of statistics in the School of Mathematical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, the president of the International Biometric Society and editor-in-chief of Statistics and Medicine. She's also written about the issue of uncertainty. Louise, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. How did you find yourself writing about uncertainty? Well, that's a, it's a long story, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> we have time. We have time, Louise. Yeah. Well, you know, as a kid, uh, I always was fascinated by mathematics and uh, always found that the world was a little bit chaotic and hard to understand. So I found that maths was the way to try to find patterns and help, help to make sense of this chaotic world. When I went to uni and discovered statistics and probability, it really started to click. And I suppose through my career, I always liked working on problems that connected the mathematical and statistical sciences with the real world. And I just gradually um, was always drawn to those kinds of problems and got involved in a few projects where it was really trying to tackle those really nutty, difficult questions about when, say, uh, a government agency needs to make a decision about, say, an environmental exposure or environment setting environmental standards, there's lots of uncertainty mm -hmm. and statistics can come to the table to help make your way through that uncertainty to help come to a decision. So that always really appealed to me. So what are you working on now that, that's forcing you to, to deal with this decision-making under uncertainty? Well, yes, the, I've got a few projects going at the moment that, that have that flavor. I've been working with the New South Wales Office of the Chief Scientist and Engineer, and they operate a little bit like, in a way, a little bit like the Academy of Sciences in the U.S., where they'll often be approached by government agencies faced with a difficult decision to try to bring together some experts to help advise. So I've been doing some projects with them and they get all the difficult projects, the easy ones, you know, they're not needed, but the difficult ones are things like, you know, how should, should government agencies be making decisions about water usage and water allocation mm -hmm. in Australia? Australia's uh, a climate, a continent where our climate is quite extreme and we're quite prone to droughts. And so managing our water resources is really, really challenging. So I've been involved in some projects where my task has been to try to bring some of that quantitative thinking to help make decisions about how sustainable are our water resources? Um, does it make sense to allow access to these deep water aquifers and that, that kind of question? It's, it's a topic that's in the news in a lot, a lot in Australia these days. You mentioned the news there. Um, so when, you, when you're reading the news and you're a statistician, you understand uncertainty, a lot of times the news often gives us numbers and statistics that make us seem certain. They don't talk about 
things like margin of error very well, or certainly uncertainty for audiences that don't really understand statistics. And you might also talk about some of your some of the criticisms you might have of, of journalism that's not sort of reporting the some of the complexities uh, in the work that you do. Yeah, so that's, that's a tough question. I think that I've seen some good expository writing lately, some, you know, journal, journal, uh, journalist writing, uh, popular science, where they're talking about the fact that unlike what a lot of people think, science is not just a hard cut and dry mm. topic. It's science is something that's constantly evolving as we uh, improve our understandings, gain new understandings and so on. So trying to communicate to the public that science is actually an evolutionary process of uh, this you know, huge community of uh, scientists across the world trying to make sense of the reality of, of the universe we live in, that it's, a, it's an evolutionary and changing process. It's not static. So getting that concept across, I think, is very helpful. And I've definitely seen a lot more people starting to write in that way uh, in recent years. And I think things like climate change help with that. People are getting a clearer sense that it's not really just black and white. It's quite subtle and mm -hmm. there, there is uncertainty. So I think the public is becoming a little bit more aware of those kinds of issues. But in terms of the concrete elements of how you communicate these things, I think that it's a mistake just to write in a very dry technical way with lots of uh, facts and figures and um, uninterpretable graphs, but finding ways to present information in an interesting and engaging way with interesting graphics and so on. I, you often start to see these days more and more people trying to find ways to present information in a way that's visually appealing. You often see things where you see graphical constructions showing how things change over time. You might've seen some of those on Facebook mm -hmm. and those can be really interesting. Even people who are non-mathematically oriented really like those things because you can see how things are changing. And so finding interesting ways to represent complex data and particularly changes over time, I think can be very helpful. And I think the classic statistical training that we give our students in university doesn't really prepare them for that because it brings in a lot of artistic elements, communication elements that are critically important. Uh, and you need people who are skilled in those kind of areas. I'm really impressed with some of the stuff that's coming out around data journalism mm -hmm. and particularly mm -hmm. some of the graphical sorts of things that people can do. So some of the things that we've done with our chief scientist office work is, for example, constructing interactive graphical tools that potentially the public can go and play with and say, well, how did this uh, water board change over time? Or how did this aquifer look over time? So letting people interact with the data, I think is really helpful. So you you mentioned this idea of the the visually appealing, and I I mean we we certainly agree with that a lot. That's a, that's a great point. But do you have other strategies that you routinely employ to communicate complex information? Well, I'm I'm not I don't know that I'm as good at it as I would like to be. Mm -hmm. I try to uh, 
try to find ways to write so that you don't overemphasize the technical side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you try to avoid just having big uh, sets of numbers and tables and in favor of graphs wherever you can. You also, David Spiegelholder has written a lot about this kind of thing as well. Lots of people have. The way you present information can really have a big impact on people. So for example, if you're trying to encourage uh, people to consider going into a clinical trial for maybe they've been diagnosed with cancer and they need to go into a trial, you can say, you can present it in two ways. You can say, well, 5% of the people on this trial getting this treatment are likely to die. Or you can say 95% of the people in this trial are likely to survive. Or you can get, do it in a more balanced way, say, well, 5% might die and 95% might live. So it's how you frame it. So there's a lot of work that's been done on that framing of communication. Mm -hmm. So it's how people respond. Understanding how people respond to the information is really uh, an important topic. It's not something I feel that I'm expert in, but it's something that I'm very aware of and try to keep that in mind as I'm communicating these ideas. So I'm curious about the, you'd mentioned water usage and water allocation. And, you know, could you help kind of um, unpack that a little bit in terms of some of the uncertainties that are part of this water allocation, water usage problem? Well, it's quite a complicated issue. And I've, over the last few months, I've had the opportunity to read a little bit of the hydrogeology literature where if you really want to know, suppose you're in a community that needs to access their water from underground aquifers, and increasingly that's the case. I'm sure you might have heard of the town called Alice Springs, which is mm -hmm. in central Australia near that very famous Uluru, that large iconic rock that people recognise mm -hmm. as being on the middle of Australia. Well, Alice Springs, which is the nearest big town, all of their water comes from an underground aquifer. And it's interesting, I was there just a few months ago and I was reading about the water because I was curious, like, where does the water come from? And it turns out that uh, it comes from this aquifer, but they don't really know completely how sustainable it is, where mm. it comes from, where the origin of the water is, how long it's been there. So to really understand the nature of these underground aquifers requires huge amounts of investment of geological studies to understand the nature of the underground rock structures, the, the characteristics of the rock, the porosity of the rocks and so on, how the water flows through, where the water flows from. So getting all of that information is extremely expensive. Sometimes if you're in areas where there's a lot of mining, they'll have done those explorations because they want to know what's down there in terms of minerals and so on. But that kind of same kind of information is needed to try to understand the nature, the structure of the under, and what's underneath the ground so that you can understand how the water flows through, where it goes to, where it sits and so on. So as you can imagine, there's massive amounts of uncertainty in um, understanding those structures. Once they build the models, which are very complicated computer-based models that can take days to run, there's uncertainty about the parameters that go in to describe those models and so on. So in practice, when decisions are made about water allocation, it'll often be fairly simplistic sorts of things such as, well, you know, we assume that we can safely take 6% uh, of the uh, water recharge each year, which may be 6% of the um, annual rainfall 
that amount can be safely extracted from the underground aquifers. So there's a lot of uncertainty. But in Australia in particular, I'm not sure about the US, it gets extremely political and there's a lot of money connected. Recently, there was a big controversy where one of our politicians got into trouble because he was connected with a company that had actually bought up a property purely because they wanted the water rights. And then when there was a drought and there was a lot of uh, concern about uh, water access, they sold the wa these water rights for a ridiculous amount of money. And of course, it hit all the headlines. So this is where that uncertainty translates across the money and politics and so on. So it can easily get very, um, everybody can get very worked up and it becomes a highly emotional issue. And yeah. <laughs> I could go on for a long time. <laughs> You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Louise Ryan of the University of Technology, Sydney. So you were just talking about sort of the the political complications uh, around this one particular issue. I wonder, we it seems like we're in a moment where we have a better understanding of where the uncertainty lies in work. But at the same time, when people feel um, less inclined to trust research. So I guess I wonder how you think about navigating this space where it feels, again, on the one hand, we like we have a better handle on what the uncertainties may or may not be. And yet people who will look at any uncertainty as a reason to sort of discard the research and how you think about navigating yes. that space. Yes, people, people can do that because people, everybody's got their own agenda and people have their own agenda for different sorts of reasons. So a lot of times, and I've seen this happen quite often, people will grab onto a source of uncertainty and they'll say, oh, well, we don't know the sustainability of this aquifer. Therefore, we can't, we can't take any action whatsoever. So people can use it as an excuse to not act and it can be um, put up as a roadblock. So you have to be really careful of that kind of thing. In my opinion, just endless talking and endless arguing doesn't get you very far. I'm a big believer in providing data, giving people data that they can use to see what's happening over time, um, monitoring data. Um, in, you've, I'm sure you've heard of Australia's Great Barrier Reef, which is of one of our national treasures, a big source of um, beauty of an attraction of Australia, but also a big source of tourist dollars and so on. And there's lots of talk these days about how the reef is under stress because of climate change and coral bleaching and all sorts of things like this. But one of the things that you can do is put in place systems that monitor how the reef is doing. Mm -hmm. And if you have good technical resources in place where people can see those data and how they're changing over time and access those data in a way that doesn't require them to be experts, so easy to access monitoring data that lets the public get a hands-on feel, I think that can make a big difference. And that's one of the th things that we've been uh, pushing for in this water work is making sure that people have access to really good quality monitoring data so that they can see what's happening. And if people are worried, for example, that the w water resources are dwindling, well, accessing the monitoring data and say, well, no, they're actually okay. They're not dwindling. So actually seeing some evidence, I think, can make a big difference. But that's where some of these tools, these interactive data analysis or uh, uh, interactive graphical tools can make a gigantic difference. But they have to be user-friendly and they have to be attractive 
in, in my opinion. So that's where that interface between statistics, art, and computer science comes comes into play. You know, I read uh, I read your your piece in the conversation, and across the top of that piece, they talk about. Uh, the fight to defend research, evidence, and facts. And you're talking a little bit about that. And your kind of commitment to com doing a better job communicating to the public is very interesting. I, I, I first no want to know where that comes from. And I'm also curious about whether the same thing that we deal with here in the States, you know, where people are suspicious of facts and data and evidence, uh, is this something that you face also in Australia? Oh, absolutely, we face it in Australia. I, I think it's everywhere these days. And it's complicated. Science is complicated. Uh, think of the clim climate change debates, and you only have to, I don't know if you're a Facebook user, but you get onto Facebook mm -hmm. and you see all sorts of ridiculous posts where people are coming down one side of it or the other. Mm -hmm. But that's why I always think like just come back to some facts, show people some facts and show people some uh, some data that and let them engage with the data themselves. That I think can make a big difference. Um, people people actually love data. Most people really do. And I've seen that where even, you know, sometimes my I'll see my sister will respond to some interesting graphical dis display and people love it but they love it when it's done in an interesting way that is visually attractive and appealing as well as communicative. So I think there's just so much potential there to do more of that. It's starting to be done and I'm not saying I can do it. I don't have those artistic abilities, but you need that fusion of statistics, art, and that computer web savvy to mm -hmm. be able to pull all those things together. But I think in terms of how I've gotten interested in this topic. It's through involvement with things like the chief scientist office, or I was on when I lived in the US for many years, I was lived in the US for 30 years. And I was uh, very privileged to sit on a couple of panels for the National Academy of Sciences, where we were asked to tackle some of these really nutty questions. And I realized then how politically loaded a lot of these questions mm. are and they only get to that level when it's really hard to make a decision so mm. setting standards for arsenic in drinking water for example was one that I always remember and it had a profound influence on me because you know I was a statistician on the project but I got to think a lot about how do people respond to these kind of data or these kinds of questions and what can I do how can I use my statistical tools to help make sense of that um, yeah, so it was through involvement in those kinds of projects that I realized how important this is. Mm -hmm. And the communication is very multifaceted. It's communicating to your fellow scientists. It's communicating to the policymakers. It's communicating to the politicians. And it's communicating to the public. Mm -hmm. And they've all got different ideas about what's important and what their priorities are. I like your your observations and your thoughts about about the uh, the use of data and visualization to help inform the public and the change attitudes. I mean, in essence, I, it's it sounds like you're 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 making data accessible. I, I when you were talking about some of these very complicated water models, these hydrogeology models, one one thing that I I wonder about and, and I think a lot about is the idea of data as as a way of reducing uncertainty. 
So can you, you know, when, when you're thinking about some of these hyd hydrology models, do, do you think about kind of data collection or, or particular variables that you focus on to help reduce it, uncertainty with using these models? Yes. Yeah, so, and again, it's, 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 it's something I've only been learning about relatively recently. So I by no means consider myself an expert on these hydrogeology models. But it seems like the real interesting stuff happening these days comes about when people build these, these what they call process-based models. So you've got all the underlying hydrogeological theories about how the aquifer flows, the shape of the rocks, the, the shape of the underground structures and so on. And then you try and diffuse that together with some empirical data. And these days they'll do lots of things like they'll put down these what they call monitoring bores. And it's basically, it's a deep pipe that goes down uh, through the rock down till it hits down into the aquifer. And they'll put a little recording device at the top, which can measure in continuous time, basically, how far down uh, they have to go before they uh, find the water, which tells them something about the pressure in the underground aquifer and how much water is there and so on. So what's interesting is how those levels change over time. So you can collect a lot of that kind of data very easily um, or relatively easily. And if you have that rich set of monitoring data, you can start to build these models that fuse together the statistical perspective with the more physics and hydrologically based perspective to come up with these very rich, albeit very complicated models uh, of the system that you're trying to understand. So sometimes I, you, you hear a little bit of a dichotomy. There's the, the hydrogeologists versus the statisticians and that somehow those are two completely different worlds. But in fact, uh, there's a lot of ground in between where those worlds can come together and build richer, much more interpretable models. Because you need the empirical data to hone the underlying hydrogeological model. I, uh, in, in one of your writings, or maybe it was on another podcast I listened to, you're reminding me of uh, a phrase that you used that I liked a lot, and I wanted you to talk about it. And it was about the virtuous cycle of collaboration. Uh. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and I I and and you talked about collaboration being one of the things that really motivates you, in terms of just instead just being sort of drawn to theory and working alone. That collaboration is something that uh, uh, I think when I hear you talk and read your writing, you're very enthusiastic about this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And I do like to think about that virtual, virtual cycle of collaboration. Some of my uh, earlier training was of that more classic theoretical orientation. And, you know, there are many statisticians who are of that mathematical orientation. And what they love to do is to develop theories and, um, you know, prove theorems and, and so on. I've always been drawn to problems where I get to engage in a real world question. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, the real world is complicated as we've already <laughs> discussed. So if you wanna engage in a real world question, as a statistician, I'm never gonna have all the tools that I need to do that. So if, for example, I'm trying to help Chief Scientist Office in a question about uh, water resource allocation, well, I need to, 
be able to work with hydrogeologists. I need to be able to work with policymakers. I need to understand a little bit about how all of the issues relevant to their field come to the table. And it becomes this interplay between these different disciplines. And you need that, absolutely mm-hmm. need that in order to be able to solve the problem in a realistic way. Uh, and I've mentioned before <clears throat> some of the really formative experiences I had when I was living in the States was working with the National Academy of Sciences there where they had that down to a fine art. Mm -hmm. They knew that if they got a really complicated problem, like how do we uh, set standards for how much fish is safe for women to eat when they're pregnant because of methylmercury, the National Academy of Sciences in the US really does it well. They understand that to tackle complicated, politically loaded, economically loaded complex real world questions, you need an interdisciplinary team. And so that's what they would do. They would form these committees, put together a group of say 15 to 20 people representing all of these disciplines and basically make them fight it out for Mm -hmm. several months in in a locked room. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But at the beginning, you think this is hopeless. We're never going to find an answer. <laughs> but gradually, there's, there's this shared uh, opinion that emerges. Sometimes there's dissenting opinions, but basically you, you, you talk about the problem, you, you nut it over, you mull it over, you argue, you, you, you fight. And eventually, though, you, you come to some shared understanding and uh, uh, an answer emerges. It's just quite remarkable how it happens. There's something quite magical about that process. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, yeah. (laughs) It is very intense, but yeah, very rewarding. So those kinds of experiences really influenced how I think about statistics these days. So I want to ask you, you're you're president of the International Biometric Society. What what are you really excited about right now, things that are going on in IBS? Well, lots of things, actually. Uh, IBS is, a, is a, quite a unique society in that we are international and we have 37 regions all over the world. And the, the global nature of our society is the thing I think that is most appealing about it. But it also means it's a very complicated society. Mm-hmm. We started um, over 70 years ago and uh, the regions all quite variable in terms of their sizes, their levels of um, resource and sophistication and so on. So it's the communication aspect that is actually quite challenging for the society. So at the moment, we've been working on a revision to our, um, to our IBS webpage. We're trying to utilize one of these uh, community structures where we're trying to build in facilities that allows people to communicate in a much more effective way. So again, it's all about communication. And so we're working with a a company called Higher Logic that specializes in creating these online communities for more technical um, communities like ours. So we're looking to, for example, create a community for the young statisticians, uh, different regions might have their own communities and so on. It's early stages, but um, trying to provide more opportunities for our members to really engage, tell us what they want, um, learn from each other. That's what I'm really trying to, to create. Mm-hmm. And we're also, of course, planning for our 
biannual conference, which will be in Seoul, Korea next year. Mm -hmm. And that's next July. So that's taking up a lot of my time and energy at the moment, <laughs> planning for that. <laughs> well, good luck. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Louise, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Rosemary. I really appreciate it. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. If you're not sick of listening to John Baylor talk stats after that half hour, you can tune in to Luis Ryan's podcast, The Random Sample. Uh, you can find it where you find other podcasts, or also you can find it in the information about this episode of Stats and Stories.